Is all discrimination mean-spirited? Because everyone does it, at some point or another, often unintentionally. So is everyone mean at their very core? Or is it just that most of us are handling everyday situations with minimal thought? Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough podcast, a show that acknowledges no one is always an expert by dispelling misconceptions with real experts. I'm your host as always, Colton Petrie. My guest today is Dr. Frank Douglas. As an immigrant in America, Dr. Douglas experienced a lot of interactions that were less than polite, and he often encountered a lot of people trying to hold him back. It's only with time between him and the situations that he's figured out a better way for others to learn from his mistakes and find a positive way through these difficulties. All this from a man who went from nobody to executive vice president of a top five global pharmaceutical company. Let's reframe our situation. Welcome to the show, Dr. Frank Douglas. Thank you. Yes, I'm so glad to have you on the show. Why don't you give a little introduction about yourself for the audience? Well, it might be interesting to uh, your uh, audience. Uh, I actually was born in Guyana, South America, came to America on a Fulbright scholarship and uh, stayed on. I've been very fortunate in that I have a PhD and uh, an MD and spent a lot of my life actually in the pharmaceutical industry. And when I uh, retired from the pharmaceutical industry, I returned to academia. Yeah, very nice. And it seems like quite a challenge to get a full-ride scholarship from outside of the country. Uh, yes, it was. Actually, they gave two that year to Guyanese. The year before, they'd given the first one. And so I was lucky the second year to be one of the two who received them. That's incredible. So what are you working on now? Well, I, as I tell people, I'm in my third retirement. <laughs> and, I, you know, I do some consulting at a very low level for startup biotech companies, a couple of them. But where I'm really spending a lot of my effort is in the area of discrimination. In fact, I just published about at the end of February, I published a new book which is entitled Addressing Systemic Discrimination by Reframing the Problem. And uh, the, the title actually has a lot to do with my own experiences, both in industry and in academia. Uh, about three years, no, sorry, not three years, but the time is going. Uh, uh, about four, five, four to five years ago, I wrote my memoirs. And as I was writing them, something struck me. And that was that often when I faced uh, problems, uh, I tended to reframe. And uh, I thought that as a matter of fact, this might be very useful for uh, individuals experiencing discrimination, be it gender, be it ethnic, religious, uh, sexual orientation, uh, that uh, this methodology might be very helpful. Yeah, is that something that you just naturally started doing or did you learn that from someone? Well, actually, uh, I, did, I did it and I discovered I had done it uh, later. When I completed my PhD at Cornell, I was actually hired by Xerox. And for three months, I could not get a good project. I would discuss with my, uh, my boss and one day, a white young man joined the group, and within a week, he was placed on the hottest project we had in research and development at Xerox at the time. So I went to my boss and asked again, and I was stunned to see the recognition just sort of come over his face as he said to me, you know, you're right. Bob has only been here a week, and I've put him on the Ardry project, which was the hottest project we had. I was livid. <laughs> I jumped out of my chair, ran to the office of the senior vice president to give him another ex example of how I was being discriminated against. Now, about two or three years later, 
I thought about that, and two things occurred to me. The first was that Dr. Travis, the senior vice president, had hired three young black PhDs that summer to add to the one black PhD that the Xerox had at that time. So it probably was more important to him that Frank Douglas did well than it was to Frank Douglas because he was on the line. The second thing that occurred to me is that my desired outcome was really to get a good project and not for the senior vice president to go and have tough words with uh, my boss. So had I reframed in a sense, had I said, you know, Dr. Tribus, could you help my boss find me a good project? That was within his sphere of influence, and that's what I wanted. And I might have retired from Xerox. Uh, instead, I ended up going to medical school. That's how I ended up having an MD after that incident. <laughs> you know, and uh, when I was in medical school, and, uh, learning uh, different things, as you know, particularly in psychiatry, you begin to see things differently. And that was when I thought about that incident and thought, you know, I actually asked the wrong question. So as I mentioned, as I was writing my memoirs, and that's in my memoir for that event, it suddenly occurred to me that I had actually learned from that incident and had been using that without really recognizing it. Very interesting. So you started to see like, oh, this would be really beneficial if I could get other people to start doing it. Is there like a best practice as far as like where it could help or who it could help? Uh, I think uh, uh, I think it can help several individuals, and this is why I talk about discrimination rather than talking about racism, because I think it can help in any situation, whether the person is aware or not, there is bias or unconscious uh, bias, and where there is a situation where one person uh, is in a higher position or more powerful than another. Uh, I think that's those are the situations where it can help. And in fact, in the, in the book, what I talk about are the two issues, namely equity and inclusion. And uh, in my view, equity is really the responsibility of the senior managers to set the ground rules, how, how we play to, uh, together, fairness, et cetera, on an organization-wide basis. And then inclusion occurs at the work unit, where the behaviors of inclusion, of belonging, listening to each other, valuing each other's experiences, that those are practiced on a daily basis. And when an organization uh, is such that equity and inclusion reinforce each other, then you produce very motivated and engaged employees. So rather than talking about DE and I, I actually talk about equity, inclusion, and individual engagement, EIIE, sort of a WEI. And and, uh, and really in organizations, that's what we want. Uh, What is interesting about this, as a matter of fact, is Gallup, over 30 years, they have been looking at issues like this, and they have uh, demonstrated that Companies that are in the fourth quartile with respect to employee engagement have much better productivity, 24% greater productivity and profitability, uh, do much better with respect to uh, retention, and uh, in a real sense, motivated employees drive productivity. So let's recognize that individuals bring the diversity what is you know the way their culture their ethnicity their gender the schools they went to and the way they think individuals bring that diversity so if we focus on individuals and focus on making sure that those individuals are motivated and the key to that is equity and inclusion we are probably going to do much better in dealing with issues around discrimination. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like, you know, you have equity, you have inclusion, like you said, there is some synergy in that and they raise everyone up. 
but when those things are missing, like there has to be some pretty extreme, you know, downfalls, like just uh, on a personal level, even like people must be suffering pretty greatly to when they're not included, when there's no equity, when there's just like a lack of opportunity. You know, it was interesting. I mean, you're just absolutely on target. Uh, in the book, uh, we have 18 interviews. I interviewed 18 individuals. And something struck me at the end of it. All but two of them actually stated that there are times when they recount episodes of discrimination when they feel like they're having PTSD-like symptoms. And in fact, it led me to really ask the question whether there is something which I am calling occupational or organizational stress disorder. So an, uh, an organizational or occupational cultural, depending on the culture environment the person is in, stress disorder, OCSD. And I suggest in the book that we really need to pay attention to it. Now, the fascinating thing about it is that after I'd written the book and published it, then out came the Boston University um, study. They had looked at 48,000 uh, Black women over 22 years and discovered that the group of Black women from amongst these, the group who had suffered racism either in employment or in housing or in dealing with the police, had a 26% higher coronary artery disease uh, incidents than the group that had not. And when I saw that, I began to think that, you know, th there is something here. And so I began to look at the literature some more. And now uh, there's literature that is beginning to, to, to come to the fore, demonstrating that, in fact, discrimination and these stressors do have impact. And you can see that in the brain, for example, uh, in the middle cortex that deals with responding to, to threat. Uh, that lights up in, in, in women who have suffered a lot of racism. Well, and 26% is a very high number when we're talking about the number one killer in America, right? Like heart disease is, yes. I believe, the number one cause of death. Yes. So seeing a 26% increase in someone's likelihood to die from that is incredibly high. Like that is astronomically high. Yeah, it is incredibly high. And when you, when, and when you think about it and, and recognize that often, uh, along with hypertension, uh, particularly in many uh, minority groups, uh, is also diabetes. And you begin to think of it in terms of what happens when there is a lot of stress and chronic stress? Well, the major hormone cortisol gets produced. And cortisol, when it is high, begins to impact blood pressure, hypertension, impacts uh, type 2 uh, diabetes. Uh, you get the, the, the fight or flight uh, type uh, experience, adrenaline on the one side and cortisol on the other. And so these the this stress hormone, uh, you know, as we call it, uh, is contributing to a lot of disease that we have not been recognizing, and in my own view, might really be contributing to some of the healthcare disparities that we see in underrepresented uh, groups. Yeah, I mean, genuinely, could be a very serious issue because, like you're saying. We try and keep people out of, oh, well, let's stay away from the stressful, you know, job. Let's not, you know, have these people in police work because it increases all these stress levels. But you're like not being included and not having opportunity in your workplace is giving you an occupational stress disorder, which is probably, you know, just as harmful in some aspects as the other, because now you're producing the same stress hormones for a much different reason. Yes, and you know it was in, it was incredible in uh, in some of the of the cases in the book. Uh, in, in fact, I was just actually amazed. There are two cases in particular that I'm thinking of. One of it was a woman 
who had been in her position for 20 years, never been promoted, you know, would apply for various positions, was known to be very helpful to others, volunteered, etc. And then one day, the manager left abruptly. And someone in the upper echelons tapped her to act for three months whilst they looked for the replacement. That stretched out actually to 10 months. And it was at the time of COVID. So she had to take over a group, uh, manage that group in a different manner because now they were at home working from home. She did well enough that they extended it out to 10 months, was on budget, got uh, all of the, the, the assignments done. And then they brought in from the outside, you know, <laughs> another person to be manager. And I, you know, as I listened to her story, I kept wondering, how did she, you know, manage this for 20 years? You know, she evidently knew her worth. She must have recognized that they knew her worth and they demonstrated it by reaching out to her to, you know, to fulfill and to fill an emergency. Uh, and then they, they demote her back to her original position. Fortunately, after, uh, you know, discussing it, complaining, they did promote her two levels up. The manager's position was three levels above where she was. And, and so you have to, to ask yourself, what has been her stress levels over 20 years? I mean, it's just silly to hear like, oh, you're, you're good enough to do this job, just not good enough to do this job for more than a year. Like yes. you had me doing this for most of a year. And then you're just like, ah, eh, we'll get somebody new that we have to train to do the job. Like that's, I mean, even extra silly on top of like, we should just be promoting this person into this role because they have all the training and requirements for it. You're like, now we're going to get somebody else, but you can go ahead and go back to your, your entry level position that we've had you in for 20 years. Well, it's incredible. The, the, the other case that jumps out to me is a, a woman who had her PhD, uh, was in her job, in her position for a number of years, did everything she could. She took all sorts of self-development courses, how to present better. She worked on uh, on her resume <laughs> to get better. She took uh, anger management courses. Uh, and in spite of all of that, she could not get promoted. Uh, what we suggested to her, and it, it turns out actually that the reason that was given, she was also the, the president of the union. And the reason that they gave her is that because she was president of the union, were she now to move over to management, that would be a conflict. And so one begins to wonder, then how do you ever get into management? <laughs> You know, if you are unionized. <laughs> yeah. So I suggested to her after, you know, going through the case and uh, trying to understand the, the issues around inclusion, the issues around equity. You know, I said, you know, as we think of reframing, here is something that you have. As the head of the union, and as you have commented on privileged individuals and you've commented on people not working together, etc., because they recognize that if they become favored individuals to management, they will be the ones who will get the promotion, etc. So why don't you focus on how do you make your group of people, okay, after all, you're the president of the union, how do you send them the message about becoming motivated because that will actually increase productivity. And in fact, if you do that, your upper management will have to recognize that in addition to all your personal capabilities, you also can lead people because you have led this group and uh, they have improved productivity, etc. 
So, which is what she did, and I finally did get uh, uh, promoted. But I was just astounded that here's a woman who is doing everything she could to improve herself <laughs> in order to be acceptable for, uh, for the promotion, although she had all of the academic requirements, if you like, and the professional requirements, and, and nonetheless not being promoted. What type of stress has she been under? Yeah, and the kind of statement to say, like, yeah, your leadership, because you're leading the union, you're leading your group, these kind of things, but you can't be management because management and, you know, your your group in the union are opposed, like they have to be opposed. That's a, a crazy thought, too, to just be like, no, they can't be together ever. Like, you can't have a union and management. Yeah, yeah. So, obviously, this the impact of stress goes out to a lot of groups and not just you know the the highest levels like we're not seeing it in just professional workers we must be seeing it in students as well yes yeah uh, and in fact in the book interestingly enough uh, there is a case of a graduate student which was really very interesting because uh, he was a minority and uh, the only one, as a matter of fact, he was uh, uh, in the department. Uh, he, he was the only black student. And in the group that he was in, he could not really get the attention of the uh, 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 of his boss, of his thesis advisor. Uh, and uh, what would happen is he would go to the thesis advisor with a question, and they would start to discuss. And within a few minutes, the thesis advisor would say, oh, you know how to do that. Uh, we don't need to spend time. While he would observe that his, uh, his colleagues <laughs> would spend, you know, eons of time in his uh, advisor's office discussing their problems. While the advisor left and went on sabbatical. So he was left there working in his own. And what he would do, he would do his experiments. He would write them up, send them to his advisor. And his advisor never responded. After a year, the advisor returned and uh, announced that he was leaving for another six months. And so now, <laughs> here is this student. One, he doesn't know whether the work he's doing is uh, work that is... Uh, you know, would qualify to get his working on a PhD, would qualify to get his PhD. Uh, he was not getting any uh, advice on further experiments to do, was not getting any advice on how to interpret the data that he was doing. And, and um, as we looked at it, you know, we thought, here is something you could do in the in way of reframing. Now, his problem, as he saw it, was how... Can he get his advisor to behave differently? And we said, okay, why don't you reframe the problem? Here are some things you know. When it comes to inclusion, your colleagues who are there, you know, you are one of them, you know, you belong, etc. Why don't you do the following? Why don't you ask them to have luncheon meetings in which you can present their data and they present their data, but tell them you need their help and you would like to present your data and to get their input and then do the following. Once you have done that, I said, you know, graduate students love to talk about the work they're doing in the science, so they won't say no, okay? And everybody will learn from it. But what you do do is that once you've done such a session, then you send a note to your boss saying that you had a session, here were the problems presented, here's what the group uh, thought you should do and you'd like to get his input, and, and copy your colleagues so they know that you send it. So you do something like that, your boss is more likely to respond. For whatever reason why he's not responding, but if you do that and it's coming from the group. okay. So reframe it from being that he's not responding to you to... Is he going to respond to the group? <laughs> so <laughs> reframe the problem that way. Yeah, put a bit of higher pressure on your your boss in That's that right. situation. Yes. 
you know. And one of the, the, the criteria actually we use, we talk about finding a better problem to solve, and then you reframe. And one of the criteria for finding a better problem to solve is to find a problem, the solution of which would not only benefit you, but would benefit others in the group. And that's a better problem to solve. Well, yeah. And in this situation, you know, he might not have been sure, is this person responding to anyone? Are we all kind of left out here in the dark? Like, do we know what's happening? Yes. (laughs) And so by having that like group accountability, you are now all sure, like, you know, two of you weren't getting responses and some of you were, and now everyone's aware of who is getting a response. That's right. Yes. That's very good. And, you know, talking about somebody going through like a PhD program, that's a very, well, not, I mean, it's a young age to start yes. taking on that much stress. And when we're talking about like the impact this stress has over the course of your life, now you're compiling the amount because it's like you're not starting to accumulate this stress at 30 or 40. You're starting at, you know, 20s. Yes, it's, it's, you know, 25, 20, 22, 25. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So. And assumably, you know, there could be that level of stress for a kid struggling in middle school or high school. Yes. Assumably that can build up really early because there's a lot of kids out there who struggle with school. Like there was a lot of subjects where even I thought like, I don't understand this subject. I don't know how to reach out for help. And, you know, you have a couple reactions, which is either like work really hard, which requires a lot of self-discipline or stress about it and not get anything done or just give up yeah so it's like two out of three outcomes are bad and one of them is very hard yeah and and when you and when you think uh, think of it i mean i mean the peer pressure is another stressor that they have uh and uh, we see now the increase in suicidal thought uh amongst young kids uh, uh, in fact, now they're looking at uh, some of the brain uh, images, the MRI of uh, uh, young kids, uh, underrepresented kids who are facing racism, and they're beginning to see that in areas, again, that have to deal with emotions, uh, dealing with uh, a threat, dealing with memory, like the amygdala, the, hip- the hy- hypothalamus, uh, they're seeing uh, uh, changes. Uh, you know, compared to uh, youngsters who are not under stress. And then you also think of bullying, and uh, you know, another stressor. So these young kids do have a lot of stress. And so we do think that a modification of this uh, um, uh, process that we have can be applied also for young kids. In fact, uh, a, a director of a, of a school district uh, reached out to me, and I think it's next Tuesday, uh, we'll be having a phone conversation with her team. Uh, she had heard me present uh, at the university in her town. She was uh, attending the, the presentation and she has reached out. And I don't uh, really know what the problems are. The fascinating thing is, is that she told me that they focus on equity in education. And so I'm going to learn what, you know, what that is. And she's very much interested. She and some of her colleagues and on discussing how this would apply to kids. And some of this talks to like, you know, the acute stress, something that is immediate and very large to someone that doesn't have a lot of life experience. Like that can have a lot of, a lot of impact on the suicide rates that we're seeing and the mental health problems of young people. It's like, they don't have a whole lot of life experience to lean on when this sudden and you know, incredible pressure is placed on them. So having to develop these skills really early could be extremely helpful. Yeah, no, I know. I, I, I do think that. And as you, you know, you mentioned your, your own situation. I mentioned, you know, I think of my own situation as a kid growing up, uh, you know, with some of these, uh, these stressors, you know, we don't have the life experience. Uh, we don't even, we don't even have the simple experience to know that this too shall pass. <laughs> you know, we don't even have that uh, life experience, uh, and and so there are tremendous stresses uh, that are uh, you know that are on kids, and and I'm actually you know really quite am- uh, amazed. That I just something just triggered in in my mind actually 
but I'm actually quite amazed on social media and and because of social media, the additional stressors and the peer pressure, et cetera, uh, that these kids are having. But something that is happening, and I think you probably saw that, I think two or three days ago, um, uh, uh, Dr. Hinton, who's the godfather of AI, uh, actually uh, resigned from Google uh, in, in, in protest in a way. And although he uh, was responsible for a lot of what we have in AI, he is now concerned that AI, that we really don't understand the power of AI, and, and AI will actually bring significant changes that will be detrimental to, uh, to us. So when you think about that as another, uh, uh, you know, I, I was having a conversation with the president of Lehigh University uh, about a month ago, and I asked him, I said, you know, it must be a tremendous challenge now for a professor to evaluate the work of students when they can go online, you know, to CPT, and uh, ask a question and get an answer and turn that in as their own. How do you now handle that? You know, how does that change uh, the, the, the way you evaluate students, the discussion between professors and students? Uh, you know, so you, you, you take that. In fact, the interesting thing was um, one of the other individuals who was uh, with us having the discussion said, well, you know, that has actually been going on for many years. You know, there were those who had the wherewithal who would pay money to somebody to do <laughs> the assignment for them to, you know, to, to write the essay, etc. So, you know, we've had to deal with that <laughs> for, for years. The difference, however, is, of course, is that now it's on a scale that, uh, you know, we haven't seen before because there are many, many more individuals who now will have access uh, to that as opposed to just a few who, who, who have the financial wherewithal to do it. So yeah. that, too, is going to create additional stress. And again, there will be the differential uh, uh, stress. Yeah, and I can see it, you know, from both sides. You know, like you said, when you're a kid, not only is this, like, new stress, but it is... Like, oh, this is going to be forever. I, you know, I can't yeah. understand that this is a short-term thing. And also it's everywhere because like you said, people are seeing it on social media and they're like, oh good, the stress is here too. So it's everywhere and it's forever and I'm never getting away from it. And it's easy to turn to some of these things where you're like, well, if I just go to the, you know, AI, like I can have it write my paper and that takes yeah. a lot of stress off me, but yes. it doesn't. Like doing that doesn't teach you that, oh, you can't just rely on this for everything. It shows you like, oh, this is the answer to my stress problem is to just dump it on something else. Yeah. It's, the, it's the answer to my acute stress problem, but I'm not building the capabilities to manage <laughs> the problems that will come in the future <laughs> because I do not have the... The, you know, the wherewithal now, I do not have the training, etc., uh, that I should have had to solve those problems at this level, you know, because I took the easy way, uh, easy way out. Yeah, and that's one of those lessons that it feels like you don't learn until it's already way later. Yes. You're like, oh, I didn't develop that skill at 16 because I was busy trying to get around it. And now that I'm, you know... 18, I realized that I should have been working on this for two years already. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's one of, a, a, I think, one of the big ahas that uh, we get when we leave high school and go to college. And there are those who, you know, didn't apply themselves in high school who get the big shock that that stuff they were doing in high school is actually required to do well in college. <laughs> So when you look at reframing things, is there a specific process that you tell people to walk through to kind of get to these better problem areas? Uh, yes. Uh, we start off actually with uh, what we call our intake form. Uh, and we get people to tell their story, but in a bulleted form. 
you know, um, you're you're too young to know this show, but there used to be a show with uh, Detective Friday who would say, you know, just the facts, man, just the facts. And, you know, when you are dealing with uh, issues of discrimination, of course, there's a lot of emotional content there. So we get uh, individuals to basically put it in bullet form and we say, just focus on four things. One, the desired outcome, and that should just be, you know, no more than two bullets, preferably one bullet. What's your desired outcome? Uh, then describe the situation you're in. And again, in bullet form. And describe the environment you're in. What's the context of all this happening? And then again, one bullet. What do you see as the problem? So there's the intake form, which describes the the situation and the environment that the person's in. And we have a panel, we call the panel our VIPs, victors in overcoming injustice in their professions. So these are individuals who have been there, done that, have walked in their shoes. Uh, because what I discovered that many times, uh, the aggrieved, I like to use that term, the aggrieved individual is not heard or feel that they're not being heard. So they will then uh, present their case to a panel whom they recognize can empathize with them so that when that panel then begins to uh, be very tough, you know, they can separate that from thinking that here again, they're being treated unfairly. They can really focus in that this panel is trying to. So what the panel does, the panel looks at the case and then asks the question, where are there the problems for this individual with respect to inclusion, where they're not being valued, there, you know, there isn't a, a sense of, be, uh, of belonging, um, where unconsciously or consciously there are insults either on them or on their ethnicity or their gender, etc. You know, these uh, comments that, uh, that are, are made many times in jest uh, without recognizing the impact it may have on the individual, or cases where, in fact, uh, you know, they are uh, being invalidated, namely, they have the expertise, the authority, and they're being treated as though they do not have it. So the inclusion issues. And then they also look at the case, particularly this at the environment, from what are the issues for the manager with respect to equity? And so once we've done that, we actually plot a map, a two-by-two, two, typical two-by-two two, equity versus inclusion, uh, which gives you four quadrants. And for example, if equity is very high and inclusion is high, then you are in a very supportive culture and individuals are likely to be very motivated and engaged in that culture. On the contrary, if equity is low and inclusion is low, then you're probably in a toxic culture. And that's the, you know, the culture from which uh, people, uh, the retention uh, will be very low. You know, attrition is very high. So once we identify which quadrant the person is in, then we ask that question, given the desired outcome, we look at the desired outcome also, we ask the question, what's a better problem to solve? And as I mentioned earlier, there are a set of criteria, perhaps the most important one is, what's the problem for which if we get a solution, not only would this individual benefit, but the other members in the work unit would also benefit. Because if you have that, it becomes easier to have the discussion with the manager. So rather than going to the manager, say, I'm being discriminated against, you go to the manager and says, you know, here are a number of things that are happening that is making it difficult for me to be engaged and motivated. And as a matter of fact, it is also making it difficult for other members of the unit to be motivated and engaged. And so then the dialogue becomes different. So we try to encourage and empower the aggrieved individual ultimately to have that dialogue uh, with the manager by understanding their desired outcome, understanding the problem, reframing the problem for them so they have a problem with which they can have that dialogue with the manager and achieve their desired outcome.
in looking at these issues, have you noticed any themes that you're like, this thing comes up 90% of the time. We are seeing this same problem just keep coming up. Well, we, you know, we only did 18 uh, interviews, so it's a small number. Uh, but in my experience over many years in, in the industry, I, I think there are two things uh, that that happen that are relatively uh, common in organizations where attrition is high. It's either on the one hand, you don't have robust equity, namely fairness, that there isn't a general feeling that everyone is being treated fairly, that you're going to be rewarded for the work that you do, and there isn't a privileged group, you know, who, who it doesn't matter what they do, there are no consequences, you know. <laughs> so that on the one hand, or and on the other hand, where you have work units, where either the supervisor of that unit is not building an environment where people are valued, their opinions are valued, uh, you know, and so often I saw when I was uh, uh, in, in industry, uh, you know, both happening to me as well as observing it happening to others, you have a supervisor who, by their behavior, you know, would ignore someone, have his or her hand up and uh, would just ignore it and had the, you know, the favorite group of people, their go-to individuals, we used to say, you know, to whom they would go for a response and would ignore others. And and even though I think sometimes these managers, you know, are totally unaware, uh, you know, of what they're doing, but for the person to whom that is happening, the person experiencing that, of not being valued, of being ignored, uh, you know, they then begin to withdraw. Yeah, it, it makes sense on one hand to say like, oh, I know, the person in my my work field that I can always go to that's going to have a solution for the problem. It's good to have that just so that you know you have someone. But if you are not building everyone up to get to that level, you know, you start to have people not engaged. They don't want to participate anymore because they just know they're not going to get called on when the issue arises. And then you end up with a huge gap in your skill set where you have you know, the one or two people that can definitely do it and a, a larger part that just won't or can't or, you know, never got the training to do it. And if those upper level people leave, you know, they get better opportunity because they've been better trained and they leave your area. You are yeah. now left in a situation where no one can do it. Yeah. Yes. And the other aspect, too, is, is that you are underestimating what the others can do and you do not know, you know. And, and the one thing, actually, uh, I, I was in a, a, a very good situation in a sense because I became executive vice president and in charge of research and development for a top five global pharmaceutical company, which was the result of a merger of a number of companies, one of which was the top pharmaceutical company in Germany. Other was the top pharmaceutical company in France. And the third one was actually a mid-size uh, mid American uh, company. But you had these three cultures in which each of those three companies that came together in the merger had been global companies. So now I am in charge of scientists, you know, coming from these three companies who were trained differently, uh, who nonetheless are very talented. And so very quickly, I learned that as a matter of fact, and, and I said it often to them, I didn't care whether the solution came from the French colleague, and we also had the Japanese, or from the Japanese colleague, or from American colleague. I just cared that one, that we got a solution that was innovative, we got it faster than the competition, and we implemented it better than the competition. You know, so I actually, in that situation, I did everything that I could to benefit and have the company benefit from the fact there was diversity. 
by the way the company was <laughs> was constructed and, and, and brought together. And it was for me really quite interesting to, to see some of the solutions that we came up and as we built on each other's ideas, you know, we didn't throw away a, 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 an idea. We just built on each other's ideas and so came up with much more innovative solutions. And that happens, uh, you know, in any unit. You've got that type of diversity. It may not be as, you know, as obvious as, uh, as the one I'm in, but you've got individuals who've been trained in different areas, who have different experience, who, who see the problems from a different perspective. And those different perspectives are the things that help you to think outside of the box, as we like to say, and come up with the unusual solution that is useful. Definitely. And that's a very interesting, I think it's a really, really good thought to say, like, I don't care who comes up with a solution. I don't care if it's the person that you have all singled out as the best among you, or if it's the newest person on the team, as long as we get a solution and we all work on it together, like the solution is good. I don't yep. care where it comes from. Yeah. You know, and one of the things actually that I did very early, which I think was helpful, is I said, look, when we're brainstorming, okay, we say this, but we need to 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 really practice it. Every idea is a good idea. So here's what we will do. Before we start a brainstorm, we will discuss and agree on what's the problem we're trying to solve. And then we will ask ourselves, what are the five or six criteria we will use to determine whether an idea is addressing that problem? So after the brainstorm, what we will do is we'll take every idea and examine it against the pre the pre-established criteria, not on the ones we've just come up with. You know, and what that did, as a, as a matter of fact, it increased the the level of trust that they had in me, that I was not this ugly American trying to bring American solutions. That indeed, when I said I, I wanted everybody's opinion and I didn't care, you know, who came up with the idea, whether it was French or not, that indeed, I really meant that and I was operating that way. And it was all transparent. And that's excellent. Is there... Something that we can do, because I think you've given us so much good, so many good things to think about. Is there something that you think we can do as a society, as a whole, if everyone listening to this, this episode that we're doing together, if we all did one or two things, is there something we could do that would, you know, profoundly help to change our society around us? Let me answer that in, in two ways. Oh, I'll say the one thing that we, we can do, but I'd like to set it up because very recently I was asked the, uh, this question a different way. Uh, uh, and the question was, is it important to have, uh, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion? And because there's so many changes going on right now, the Supreme Court is looking at affirmative action, etc. And I said, you know, I... Where I am right now, I can't depend on the church and the moral standing anymore, but there's one thing I can depend on, uh, and that is the Constitution. And it says, we hold these truths as self-evident, that all men are created equal, all, that's the diversity, and are endowed by their creator, and to have the gifts to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. So in that statement, we've got diversity, we have the fairness, all are created equal, and we have the inclusion that all can pursue life, liberty, and, and happiness. So that's, you know, what I base it on. And if we, if we just seek to remember that. And then the second one is... Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So I think the one thing which we could do is just love our neighbors like, like ourselves. You know, that in every situation, just simply ask the self, is that the way I would like to be treated? 
And I think if we really did that honestly, uh, it will change uh, a lot of things. If we remember all, all people are created equal, you know, all men and women are created equal. Okay. Uh, so if you remember that and simply say, you know, is that the way I would like to be treated? Uh, I think that's the one thing if we did, it, it would help us. I think that's incredible advice, and I have appreciated your time immensely. It has been so great to speak with you and to hear your thoughts on all these things. I'd love to give you some time to tell people you know, where to find you and your book if they're looking for more from you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, the book is uh, entitled Addressing Systemic Discrimination by Reframing the Problem. And you can find it on my website, which is Frank douglasbooks.com frankdouglasbooks.com it's on Amazon, it's on Barnes & Noble Fantastic. and one thing I would ask you when you read the book uh, please write a review on Amazon <laughs> exactly you know, is... as long as it's an honest review that is, that is fine yeah, that is the one thing I am always trying to get people to do is I'm like, look, if you pick up these books if you like the people that are on the show and you think they have valuable things for you and you enjoy their books just leave a good review it is so easy it has almost no impact on your life outside of the minute that you're going to take to do it but it helps the creators of these things so much because that's how they get seen that's how your book finds more people that can yes. also benefit from it is just a review yeah and then and it doesn't take too long. I, I've written reviews for you know for others uh, books, and it does not really take long. Even if you want to leave a quick review, like it's great to have a really long review that gives you a high level. Like this is why I like the book, and this is what I got out of it, and this is why you should read it. That's great. But if you're the person who's like, I don't have time for that, you can write a review that just says like five stars. I loved this book. It was really good. Read it. That's yeah. it. <laughs> no, you can. <laughs> it can be two or three sentences. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for being here. Like I said, I've appreciated oh, this. No, thank you for inviting me, and I uh, appreciate your questions. Thank you very much. There's your takeaway assignment for this episode. After an interaction today, any interaction, ask yourself if you treated that person the way you want to be treated. It's easy, and hopefully you'll find some validation in seeing that you are treating people with kindness. However, you might just have that shocking moment where you realize you're not being such a nice person for no apparent reason. May's a new month, and here's the new ranking so far. Number one, the United States, with Texas, Arizona, and Oregon as top states. Number two, Australia, with Victoria firmly dominating every other Australian area combined. Number three, Canada, with Ontario taking a great lead this month. Number four, the United Kingdom, slipping all the way down from their normal number two slot and led by England. Did I mention I have more visibility on a few countries now? And number five, Sweden. Back to the list after some time away and led by Scane. Alright, do all the good stuff for the show. Rate, review, like, and subscribe. Dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or social media if you want to reach out to me. That's it for today. Have a great week, and I'll see you all back here on Thursday. Stay dumb. <laughs>